Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thank you so much for listening so far. This is the podcast where we get to chat with all kinds of interesting people in the world of entrepreneurship. And today is a very fun conversation with Matt LaRochelle. He is the co-creator of The Extreme Bean and him and his partner Steve are taking the art of pickling to a whole new level. From pickling in their condo, these guys are now selling en masse with a jar of extreme bean consumed every 11 seconds. In this very fun episode focused on niche food products, we discuss the art of bootstrapping, how to get a niche food product into national retail like Costco or Walmart, debt versus equity, business partnerships, launching products that celebrate life, and so on. Matt takes so much pride in creating fantastically tasty products, and it resonates throughout this amazing talk. This was a lot of fun. So here we go. My chat with the bean counter himself, Matt LaRochelle. Matt, the question I want to ask is, when did you guys, I mean, you got the recipe right. You started going to these trade shows. What was it that made you guys think that this could be a business that you could scale? Well, we're the only ones who thought this was a business that we could scale, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think, first of all, and I mean this uh, seriously, but also a little humorously, is I'm a biggest fan. We tried this product and we were like, damn, this is good stuff. And we just really believed in what we were making, me and Steve. And that's when we decided to introduce it. And the reaction was good, but I would say it was slow. It took us a long time for us to get out there and to get sampling as, in as many mouths as we could to get the pickup that we actually could see it scaling. It took, you know, and I'm talking years, to get to a critical mass where You know, now when you ask people about the extreme bean, most people that I talk to have heard of it. You know, that was a a long time. And we always believed in our heart of hearts that we could scale, but it it took probably, you know, close to five years before we really started to see it live on its own momentum. What was the pitch to these guys? I mean, was this something that, I mean, did you say this is something that tastes delicious, but you put it in a Caesar? Did you say this is a snack? Yeah, well, at, at the beginning, what we identified, because we didn't have any marketing money, we needed to be very laser focused in what this product was used for. We had to keep on saying the same things as much as we can to get through to people. So 
our pitch was easy. You know, we went directly to bars and restaurants at that time and say, listen, salary is inconsistent in cost. It's high one day, lower-ish the next. Your bartender or your serving staff are cutting it up. And then, so that costs you some money. And then at the end of the day, you can't keep salary for more than one day. So it, you throw it out. Salary goes in bins where all the servers' hands are in there. So that's a food safety issue. So we had these very specific reasons why practically you should pick up the extreme bean and get rid of the seller stick. Now the un I guess the the more emotional piece was it's fun, it's topical, it's really, really tasty. So your guests will have a better experience with it and practically you will pick up savings and time by using it. So we were kind of hitting them on both sides of that. And your mom, I mean you're saying that she was a pickle expert in the in the beginning, I mean, without your mom, would this business ever have happened, do you think? I, I really don't think so. Because at the time, me and Steve were having an idea a minute. And, you know, well, I would say my mom and my family, how I grew up without that background, we used to pickle stuff every, every, every fall, right? We uh, were French Canadian, uh, as far back as I, I can trace. We've been here in, here in Canada. And you know, this was not a foreign concept to me. I, I saw my aunts and uncles and mothers, you know, grandmothers. That's what we did in the fall. We would pick the garden and we would pickle everything. So that's why when Steve had the idea of a bean, I had a knee-jerk reaction and said, well, let's pickle it because then, you know, we can have it any time of year. Hmm. So how, okay, so fast forward a little bit. You're going to these trade shows. You guys have something that you think tastes great. People like it. Are you guys all in at this point? Do you have jobs? How are you financing this? <laughs> we had jobs. Oh, yeah. We, 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 uh, we were still working in a bar and restaurant business. We didn't have, to this day, me and Steve still own our company 50-50. We didn't have any outside investors. And, you know, we didn't come from family for money. So we had to work. I was bar managing. Uh, Steve was... Um, doing odd jobs and working as a bartender. Steve was putting more time at the beginning in than I was. He was picking up odd jobs and I was, um, you know, working full time. So we were just, you know, that's one of the reasons probably why it took us so long to get it going because we didn't have the ability to quit our jobs until around 2010. And that's when we were, you know, the company was enough. Still, we weren't getting paid. But it was enough to, we could see enough and far enough in the future to say, well, this one day we probably will get paid. Let's go all in and get this going. How uncomfortable, I mean, was that for you guys when you made that leap from saying, okay, we're doing this sort of on the side and seeing what kind of momentum we can generate to the point where you said, okay, we're done with our jobs. Let's jump all in. Yeah, that was, uh, for me, that was, that's a fairly personal question. So in 2009, I was, I really disliked my job. I was working as a bar manager and working the weekends and the nights and I was getting older and wanted to start a family. And that was just not conducive to doing all that. And I was just uh, in, in generally, in general, not happy. So I was really already taking stock of that position and looking to see if this company could, you know, sustain me going forward. And then in September in 2009, my dad passed away and he was, you know, 60 years old. He just turned 60 years old and he passed away. And that was something that showed me that life is short. 
you know, he was a relatively young man with uh, full of spirit and heart and ended up passing away. And he left me, uh, he, he had a life insurance of $100,000 and I got three uh, siblings. So we all split it. So we all got $33,000 each of life insurance. So at that point, I decided, you know, and I, I credit my father for helping me launch the business to this day. I said, you know, life is short. I have a little bit of money. This is all I have in the world, but it will, if I live cheap, this can sustain me for, you know, a year, maybe two, if I live super cheap. So at that point in January 1st, I got through the Christmas season in the restaurant business, but in January 1st, 2010, I quit and I started, uh, me and Steve had little tiny little offices, like literally desk touching each other. And I said, okay, we only had two employees at the time, me and Steve. And I said, let's go. We, let's see if we can make this happen. It sounds like, I mean, the, the, personal side of your story is also something I, I wasn't totally familiar with. I mean, the, your, your mother, you know, and her role in the early days of extreme being and her being the pickling expert, uh, sort of carved out what's now an incredible product or set of products, big story, uh, but also your father. And then that, that situation, which kind of, you know, who knows what, what, what would have happened if that, that didn't happen. I want to, I mean, is there any more to say around the personal side before we talk a little bit about the, the partnership with Steve, because I want to jump in there as well. His family was as supportive in the making this happen, although, you know, money wasn't brought to the table, but just the help and the always being able to lean on them. If, you know, we needed something, I got some great stories in the early days of how his family really helped us out and got us through some challenging times. So it really, although me and Steve have you know, the people who were at the forefront of this company, we had a very strong support system behind us from, you know, our family. Of course, without getting too personal and sharing anything confidential, is there anything with respect to those challenges and Steve's family's influence that you could share? I have this one story that Steve's mom will not let me live down to this day. <laughs> so we, mm -hmm. were, we were starting the company and it was going quite well. And we sold about 20 cases to this major distributor. And then we went out and did our job and we, we, we did pretty good. And then we sold 40 cases to the same distributor and we went out of our job. We did uh, pretty good. And then we had, I, I was working at a bar and restaurant at the time and they ordered a bunch of those 20 cases. So the distributor decides to put in 80 cases. Well, at that time, 80 cases would have took us probably two, three weeks to do because we were working at other jobs and we were, you know, we, we couldn't dedicate full time. So we grabbed his family. We went out to their farmhouse and, and his sister was uh, nine months pregnant. He sat her at the, you know, the island top and she packed beans. And at that time I was scheduled to go on a cruise that my ex-girlfriend's mother you know, got it. So I had to go. This mm -hmm. was already pre-scheduled. And so anyway, so his whole family rallied that weekend and literally packed. So 80 cases, that's 800. So 900 jars of beans in the weekend to fulfill this order. And, you know, had, you know, the, the blistering hands and all the things that come with it to make this happen. So, you know, they were always willing to, you know, lend a hand and jump in wherever they needed our you know, offices. His dad was a painter at one point. His dad painted the offices, right? Like they're always there to, you know, what do you need and what can we do? Yeah. Sounds like, I mean, you guys had an incredible support system, not just from your side, but, all, but also from Steve's. I want to shift gears into the business. For those who don't know, I mean, 
we're talking a lot about the early days of, of the business. Extreme Bean, which is now, I know it's across every major grocery chain in Canada. I don't know how many retailers or grocers you're in in the United States. Could you give the listeners just an overview, besides the obvious, the Loblaws, the Costcos, the Walmarts of the world, what your reach is now today? Okay, so we are, from a Canadian perspective, we're coast to coast. We're in every major banner in Canada. So without listing them all, we are now, we're in a pickle set of pretty much everybody. And from a food service standpoint, we are with every major food service distributor across Canada. There is no place in this large, beautiful land that we have that we can't get to through our uh, distribution network. So that is GFS, Cisco, Summit, Lanigan's, Eberhardt. So Canada is relatively mature at this point. We have just recently, over the last year or so, started doing some work in the U.S. Now, Costco Texas has been a client of ours. We're doing some work with HEB, some... So some early stage work with uh, some of these retailers in the U.S., which is all pointing to fairly positive results. Can you give us an idea of how many jars of extreme bean or asparagus or some of the other products that you have are actually being sold? Well, a little fun fact is a jar of extreme bean is consumed every 11 seconds. Wow. Uh, So. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so you, you, you can you can do the math on that and how many jars go out the uh, go out the back door every year. But we, you know, we've we've gone from cottage industry to a relatively nice size manufacturer. Yeah, that, that's a that's a lot of beans. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember who the first retail grocery chain was to pick up the product? I do. I do. We uh, Sobeys was the first major retailer. Now, we had some specialty retailers before that, but major retailers, and when I say major, uh, I use the um, the filter of has a national presence. They picked us up, but they picked us up regionally in southern Ontario, and they did a uh, test market where it was, you know, 40, I think it was 40 stores or 30 stores, something like that. And they did a test market, so we had to deliver, you know, four or five cases to every store individually well there's so much pent-up demand from the bars and restaurants been using it over so many years that it just it skyrocketed to you know the number one seller in the pickle set so on that success we were able to get you know Sobeys national and then the domino started to fall you know the 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 loblaws and then the costcos or the walmarts or the uh metros of the world started to take notice and then we were you know able to get it, go national essentially in all, all major retailers for somebody that has a niche food product, let's say, for example, vegan granola bar that they think tastes phenomenal, they're selling it into specialty stores, and they want to take that next leap and now sell to a national grocery chain, what advice would you give to that small business as to how to do that? How did you guys do that? Yeah, I'll just you know explain how we did that. We used and to this day too, it still rings true. We use in in our example, we use food service for our trial market. So we were able to use a, the food service channel for people to get our product into people's mouths. That was our way of doing it. But if you, as the vegan bar example uh, you gave, I believe if you if you believe in your product and your product is really good, and that's what I tell our guys here all the time. Anybody could tell sell something once. 
you better make whatever you're selling phenomenal because you can't build a business on selling a food product once. You have to come back for more. So your attention has to be so focused on quality and taste. That has to be always number one. But once you have that and you, you believe in that, then you have to get into people's mouths. So that could be consumer shows. That could be, you know, we use some food service stuff or street festivals or in-store sampling, whatever it is that you can do, you know, you have to get people to try it. Mm. Okay. So if you got, I guess one, once you get into a Sobeys and you want to say, get into the next level up, say get into a Costco, how, how does a small business negotiate with a behemoth like Costco? Do you have <laughs> any insights that you can share on that? <laughs> well, uh, never. Yeah, for, by the way, that's not even a mention. Uh, you're also in Walmart, so you could use Walmart as an obvious example as well. Well, I'll say this. First of all, you're not going to get a store to pick you up if you don't sell. You have to have a level of confidence that you're going to sell. And then after that is, it's just it's just talking to people, right? People talking to people. So they have uh, a business, and they're in the business of selling through product. You're in the business of providing products. So as long as you can go into them with a certain amount of confidence that your product will move off the shelf and you can more or less guarantee them that it will, they're actually quite open to trying new products. They need new products. You know, in this day and age, people are very hungry for different, healthier options or, you know, more, more interesting or more fun options to do. And these major retailers have recognized that. This is not the 1970s where, you know, everything was pretty stable and major brands were major brands and, you know, uh, niche products didn't really have anywhere to go. Nowadays, people are craving niche stuff. People are craving new and interesting stuff. And the buyers have recognized that. So if you can bring something to them that they can see their clients wanting, then they're really relatively easy to deal with. Mm -hmm. So if they, I mean, if they really love the product and they see the potential for sales, what other concerns do they raise? Do they talk about concern over you being able to keep up with demand? Do they talk about uh, your supply chain or do they look, do they do an audit of your facility? What are some of the other concerns that they look for? Well, for sure, food safety is big. Nobody wants to be on the wrong end of that. Now, our plant has been CFIA certified, FDA, GF2 certified, gold standard. We have been audited by Walmarts. We've been audited by Costco's. Uh, we've been audited by most of our big clients. So that is absolutely paramount. They want to know, especially you know, if you're small and you don't have national presence, such as a craft, or you know, you can assume that the, the bigger guys have all this stuff already buttoned down. Whereas they want to check out the smaller guys to make sure that they do too. So that would be something. And But from a business owner or you know an owner or anybody in charge, that's okay. You actually want them to check you out. You actually mm -hmm. want all this regulation in place because at the end of the day, the last thing you ever want to do is have a problem with your food. So it makes me sleep at night. I know it makes Steve sleep better at night that all these regulations are in place and that we have to do them to comply. And there's nothing wrong with that. Did you guys always have that? Were you always, I guess, quote unquote, compliant? Or did you have to become, like, was there, I guess what I'm asking is, was there a point in the business where you were operating in the gray? 
Yes. In in the beginning, you do operate in the gray, but with this, with with major, I would say we were operating in gray, but we weren't operating illegally. So you don't need this certification if you know you're not shipping over national or provincial lines. So if you're, let's say, a farmer that wants to make jam and selling it at farmer farmers markets, these regulations don't apply to you. So essentially, that's what we were doing. But once you get big and you want to ship over provincial lines and you want to ship over national lines, there's a bunch of regulations that kick in that you have to be compliant. So we had to we had to do it to, to stay compliant. Let's talk about product expansion just for a second. Do these chains look for innovation? Are they asking questions about what you intend to launch next in terms of product mix? Yeah, and that's something you also have to be careful of because they don't know your business like you know your business. So, for example, when we launched the Extreme Bean Hot and Spicy, it was a, on all accounts, it, it, it was measured as a big success. So the retailers naturally were saying, what else do you have? What else do you have? And then, so you're kind of getting pushed to come out with some other products, and sometimes you might not be ready for them. Sometimes you might not have the marketing machine in place to launch another product. So you can get, I guess, unfocused or in trouble by launching too many SKUs because your your core SKU was very popular, and then you start launching a bunch of stuff underneath it. They're not as popular, and then the bloom comes off the roads, and then you know the I guess the buyers will go a little dark on you because you consider yourself a little bit of a one-hit wonder. So when you're when when you have a success on your first product, you have to be careful about what you launch after that because that has to have a measure of success and you have to be ready to, you know, put the marketing dollars behind it, go to the consumer shows, go to the, you know, the trade shows. And if you're not, you probably should just wait and, you know, go from there. Yeah, and you guys, I mean, you guys have stayed pretty tightly focused, right, in your SKU mix. I mean, relative to how long you've been around, you've been around, I want to say, eight years, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, full-time, uh, eight years, a little longer than that, like, you know, packing our first jar. But, yeah, so over the years, we've probably launched about eight SKUs. Now, you know, the Caesar Rimmer, some of these were variations of the Extreme Bean, like the Extreme Bean hot and spicy, extreme bean garlic and dill, and extreme bean sweet and savory. Now, there's not, after the extreme was already made, there's not a ton of innovation around that other than flavoring and your process, your packing mm-hmm. process, and it relatively stays the same. So you can almost bottle that up, you know, no pun intended, into one innovation and then some line extensions off of that. But then we came up with the asparagus, which was an innovation, and the Caesar Rimmer, 2005 which was an innovation so you know and then there was there's line extensions off of all those but yeah so i mean it sounds very calculated in the approach like do you have a process when you're thinking about adding a potential new skew to your brand well we have a filter i wouldn't say it's a it's a tried and true process we we had a years ago whatever you your idea 18 months ago, like you already might be behind the curve in two years. So my thing was that doesn't work for us. We need to be able, one of our strategic advantages in the marketplace is that we're nimble and we have to stay nimble. So we need to launch quicker. When we see something that works, we need to launch quicker. But we do run it through some filters and our filters are tasty, topical, social, and fun. So anything that we launch has to be number one, tasty. It has to be a good quality product. 
we will not launch anything that we are not super fans over. Topical, it has to be topical. There has to be some sort of water cooler. And if you look at the extreme, there's a little bit of a kind of fun water cooler-ish discussion about you know how our company got started and the you know the crazy bean guy in the jar and it has to be social everything that we do you you know you're not gonna have a drink by yourself but if you do i'm not judging but you know usually you'll have a drink <laughs> i was gonna say <laughs> you might but there are some that, that do have drinks <laughs> by themselves <laughs> if you do i'm not judging i'm sure i've been guilty uh, of, of it on many occasions but for the most part you'll have a drink with friends with your wife with uh, some colleagues so we actually, uh, all of our, even in our marketing on the food side, we do share platters and scooter boards and appetizers that are meant to be sharing. And the last one is fun. It has to be fun. If it's not fun, then you're just a marinated vegetable and, you know, there's no fun in that. So we run it through those filters. And if, and if any new product can hit those, all four of those pillars, then we'll, uh, we'll take a serious look at it. That is cool. I mean, I've uh, this is certainly the first time I've heard of that type of filter as it relates to a potential business idea or product idea. But insofar as or to the extent that people share socially today, you're certainly, I think, at an advantage if you're putting a product idea through these four filters that you described. People have wanted to be entertained for the, from the beginning of time. So any product that we launch... We, we, we try to bring that little bit of that entertainment, that fun factor, that sociability to it. Yeah. Okay. So let's shift gears a little bit. I want to go back to the partnership topic because it's of interest to me and I'm sure it's of interest to other people who are thinking about partnerships. You and Steve have been business partners in uh, this business for eight years. Were you, what's like, how did you guys connect and were you always destined to be partners? Me and Steve met, first of all, we met bartending, but that is not the full story. So I was dating this girl at the time and I was 22 years old and we were living together and it was way ahead of my time living together, settled down at 22 years old. And I, I was out with, you know, the guys and the, you know, everybody, the employees from the bar and I got home late and my girlfriend said, listen, you know, you have to figure out whether you want to be in a relationship or do you want to kind of not be for a few more years? So she said, I'm going to my sister or my parents' house for the weekend. When I come back, I want your decision. So at that point I said, well, I, I guess I have to make a decision. So I made a decision. So I moved out that day. And I didn't have a place to live, but Steve mentioned in passing, we barely knew each other at the time. He mentioned in passing, he says, I might have a room, my roommate might be moving out in a couple months. If you're looking for a place to stay, you can, you know, we'll talk about that. So I pulled up, you know, at that moment and I said, you know, knocked on the door, his roommate answered and I said, I'm moving in. And Steve got home from the working in the bar that night. And there I was, I had all my stuff shoved in his solarium in his little apartment and a little spot made out for my bed at 22 years old. And I said, Steve, sorry, but I have no other place to go. You got to take me in. And he did. And at that point we became, so I was 22. We were 22. He was 23. At that point we became best friends and we've been best friends for life. For people who are concerned about getting into business with their best friends, what advice would you give and how do you guys make things work so well between the two of you uh yeah so 
this is, making it work has to be, you know, you have to have an extreme amount of respect for the person, but you have to do this by design. So when I quit in 2009, me and Steve sat down and we had a really interesting discussion. I said, as we grow this company, we need to understand not essentially a reporting structure, but a decision-making tree. We can't have, as we start building employees, employee running to dad or running to mom because he didn't know like what dad said. And we understood at that kind of young age that we needed to understand as we start building in place, how how does the company make decisions? So at that point, we made a decision-making tree. And we understood at, at the very top, we put my name and Steve's name. Both of the people had 50% ownership. So whatever the structure is moving up, have to report to these people. So essentially what we did is we said, okay, well, Steve, what, what do you want to do? Matt, what do you want to do? And then we went from there. We said, okay, so if this is your skill set and this is what you want to do, this is, this is how decisions are going to be made to you, how decisions are going to be made in that vein. And then is this what I want to do? This is how decision. And ultimately, somebody had to be the final decision. And that was the person that was in charge of monitoring and taking care of the finances for the most part, but had a uh, more aptitude when dealing with multiple people. So how, how we, we just went and we put it on a, on a sheet and we Block, you know, made blocks. And we said, okay, this is how, how they're reporting, but the decision makings will move up the tree. And whoever ends up at the final decision on these particular items still have to answer back to the shareholders. And shareholders happen to be me and Steve. So although there was a operational rigor, whoever ended up owning that decision or making that decision inherently had to answer for that at the top. So it, it worked out for us. And we were, and we've stayed true to that structure ever since. So, and it doesn't only work for a partnership, it works for all your employees underneath. So these, they have a clear understanding of who makes the decision on this, whatever, you know, that particular issue is. How many, how many employees are you guys now? We're about 50. So over the course of the last eight years, and as you've grown to 50, there must have been some times where you and Steve as 50-50 partners have had to have some difficult conversations. Like, how do you guys navigate those conversations as best friends in a business? Yeah, so I think a lot of partnerships that I talk to under, or give me feedback, it's like I'm doing more than that person or I'm doing you know, this, and I'm bringing more value to the table and you just cannot let your mind go there. You have to be very understanding that if you start saying that you're personally worth more than that other person, that's already setting you up to fail when it comes to a 50-50 partnership. So you let those dark thoughts, don't let those dark thoughts come into your mind. And then, so under that light, you can say, okay, so if everybody's equal, Everybody brings different stuff to the table, but the value is still there on both sides of the fence. Then you can go to go to a spot and say, whatever that decision was, they're doing the best. They feel that that is the best decision for the company. And when you put yourself in other shoes and look through it through that light, you don't say it's a wrong decision. You say, well, that might not have been the decision I would have made, 
but why do you feel that's the best for the company? And oftentimes they'll tell you, and it makes total sense because you're not deep into that world. And, you know, so make sure you're looking, I would say that we've always been able to look through it, challenges in the proper light. Mm -hmm. Life, I mean, life happens, right? And stuff sort of blindsides you and then Say, for example, somebody, you know, one of you is dealing with a personal challenge uh, at home or whatever. Somebody's had a child. Somebody has to go away for a while. Somebody gets ill, whatever it might be. Like, have you guys had those moments where you've had to really test yourself? Like you, you mentioned not going there. Like, don't let your mind go to that dark place where you think I'm doing more than my partner. But sometimes mm-hmm. life happens and then, you know, you're having to carry the weight. For lack of a better term, that's, that's your role now while your partner is dealing with his or her shit. So how does, mm. how does that work? Right. So I have two kids. Uh, Steve has none. So you might be able to answer that question better, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's been times and, you know, and it's not even that big a deal. It could be, I'm taking my family on vacation or there's something going on, but this has been booked and I, I just can't change some of these family obligations that you have. So those do come up. They'll hundred percent always come up. But since we've been best friends for 22 years, I personally, how I've fought off any of those types of issues in a partnership is you look, you look at it through a broad lens. You say, okay, well, yes, I might be working harder than him or him, you, you know, for it last six months, you know, last eight months. But if you look at the, the body of work in a larger lens, you see like kind of all irons out eventually. Um, but I would, I would say this, if you are getting into partnership with somebody, you have to match your work ethic, because if you have somebody who has a different, I guess, perspective on what work that ethic is, that's really hard to kind of make work. Me and Steve believe in, uh, putting the work in how you have to put the work in for success. If somebody believes that, you know, you can do a four hour work week and still get the same success. Well, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying those values might not line up very well and that could cause problems. So, you know, our values align extremely well, although we're very, very different people. You know, our values of how we want to run the company align pretty tightly. Hopefully Tim Ferriss just heard that comment. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, a couple last questions and I'll let you go. I want to ask you briefly about financing during a high growth period. So you guys are 50, 50 partners. So how do you guys finance during high growth? If you can get your traditional banks on side to finance your growth, that in my perspective has been a better route for us. Now, equity is expensive money. Eventually, that equity, those roosters are going to come home and they're going to want their, their peace. And, and, and rightly so. They put up the money in a risky environment. And if it all works out, they should get uh, quite a bit of upside. But it's going to be expensive for the owner and they're going to be doing all the heavy lifting. So what we did from a financing perspective, it was super tough. And I don't, I, I don't want to you know, downplay that. 
our first line of credit was $16,000 and we actually had to give them $16,000 and they put in a, in a secure fund for them to loan us $16,000. But it was about starting a relationship. <laughs> the bank had yeah. zero risk. And zero risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all the yeah. leverage. Okay. Right, right. And we were supposed to be thankful of that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, well, thanks for that. But what that did was open the door to a relationship. And that's where I've been very influential in our company is to say that they're just selling money. You don't deal with them any different than you would deal with somebody you know that is selling you beans or that is selling you're selling to. So after that relation start, I spend a lot of time and effort keeping them in the loop on our business. Once a year, I pretty much demand that the visitor plant with whoever our relationship managers with her direct boss to make the decisions because you have to get to the boss that makes the decisions. You don't want to leave that person in a, in a black box. You have to understand your business because ultimately your relationship manager usually has to go someplace for clearance. So get to that person, whoever that is. So I invite them down to the plant and I walk them around and I give them a PowerPoint presentation. I explain to them our growth and our future and I do the math and I do the work and, you know, get them on side so they have complete visibility on where we're going and where we've been. And you can put a name to the to the paper. So, you know, that in itself, I think, has done wonders for being able to stay in a traditional banking model and expand with them instead of going for any outside equity. And, you know, in, you know, kudos to them. They've been very supportive over the years. Although, you know, I won't say that the right, you know, blank checks, everything that you've helped us out with, there's been a lot of rigor around that to prove that this was a good investment for them. And that's that that sales process is easier now that you guys have a facility. I mean, when you didn't have a facility and you wanted to, I don't know, extend your line of credit, what were you, what were you showing them? Uh, $16,000, uh, cash. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is, you know, what I just explained has, you know, over the last few years, we've been able to do that. But at the beginning, honestly, it's, it's, it's second jobs. It's, you know, bootstrapping. It is, you know, just putting every dime that you make back into the company. And that's just the way we did it. It's hard. It's not preferable, but if, you know, when do you want your pain? Do you want it at the beginning or do you want it at the end? Me and Steve decided to take it at the beginning and really bootstrap and, and work hard and, and, and live cheap. So we didn't have to take a, the pain now where we would have a third person or, you know, potentially more as partners. And we would have to, you know, deal with all that complexity in doing it at that point. Yeah. The, the pain in the end being additional partners, additional shareholders you've got to answer to. That's right. Okay. And by the way, I mean, your facility is very impressive. I, I don't, it's, it's state of the art. I don't think listeners really can understand uh, just by hearing you talk about it, how impressive it is. Um, okay. So you, you mentioned kids before you had this business pre-children, you've got this business post-children. Can you point to a couple of key ways your life has changed that you didn't expect after you had children? <laughs> To be honest, I didn't understand how children focus you in business. Mm. I think that I am a stronger business person, stronger leader, stronger person in general because I have kids. Kids have a way of 
grounding us, I feel. And the actual, ha- they have a way of structuring our schedule, <laughs> per se. You know, there is, the grounding is one thing, but, you know, I'm in bed every night now by 9.30, 10 o'clock because I'm exhausted because the kids are up at, you know, 6, 5.36 every morning. So the, just the schedule. And so when you wake up, you are, your body is so used to what you're doing that it know it can turn on right away. And I just find it extremely powerful to be on such a kid driven schedule. Yeah. I didn't quite understand. That. I didn't know that was going to happen. Did you feel like you had um kind of like a renewed purpose for building wealth, building a business? No, actually the, the kids, I have no interest in leaving this company to my kids. I think, um, if they wanted to get involved, they would have to start at the bottom for sure. I just, I think they got to make their own way. I think there's a lot of self-worth and joy that comes in making your own way. And I'm going to promote my kids to be entrepreneurial, but find what, what, what drives them, what makes them passionate about life. So did I get more focused on the business? Because I had kids, no, n- not really. Uh, the business drives me for other reasons than, you know, leaving it for my kids or building wealth for my kids. I, I believe my kids, listen, I'm going to do everything I can for them without being over the top. But I think they have to find their own way and they have to struggle a little bit and they have to make their own mistakes. And I think in the end, that's going to pay huge dividends for them if I let them go through that growth process. So. Great advice. I think we'll we'll um, wrap up on that note. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. We, we could probably do this again for round two at some point down the road. I wish you all of the best continued success with Extreme Bean and everything else that you and Steve are working on together. It's really an, an incredible story. Where can people find out more about you guys? www.mattandsteve.com or extremebean.com. We are, please join our Facebook community or Instagram. We are currently running a big uh, St. Patty's Day promotion. Spin the wheel and uh, get yourself some free stuff. Awesome. Okay, man. Well, it's been a pleasure. Have uh, an amazing rest of 2018 and uh, please stay in touch. Okay, buddy. Thanks. Okay. Take care, Matt. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase. Experts in subscription e-commerce, visit scriberbase.com for more details. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price, more at indochino.com. And our good friends at Unbound Merino Stylish, simple merino wool apparel that can be worn for weeks without ever needing a wash, more at unboundmerino.com. Your positive support means a lot to us, so if you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wannabet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. 
But I like airplanes. I know you do. But Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business, spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric Acid.